0: an animal. Talks like an animal. Must be an animal. Come here, the animals. Talking animals. Talking animals.
1: Good morning, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. All right, my guest today is Dr. Justin Perrault, Vice President of Research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, or LMC, located in Juneau, Florida. LMC is a nonprofit sea turtle research, rehabilitation, education, and conservation operation. Peralt and his team recently reported that across a nearly 10 mile expanse of beach, Spanning Juno Beach, Jupiter, and Tequesta, turtles laid a record number of nests, more than 25,000 during the season, which runs from about March to October. According to an article in the Palm Beach Post, the number of nests, 25,025 to be precise, was the most LMC has counted since it opened in 1983 and a 38% increase over the number of nests tallied last year. These figures include nests for loggerhead, le- leatherback, and green turtles, notable because all three species are either threatened or endangered. As you may have heard or read recently, this surgeon turtle nest this season is a phenomenon experienced in other parts of Florida as well. What I hope to explore with Dr. Parolli, among other topics, is why, what's going on with these turtles and all the nests. We'll explore those things in a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Nadia Tenery. An organizer of Thanks Vegan, the 14th Annual Podluck Extravaganza held on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd. The Unitarian and Universalist of Tampa. There's a formula for what you pay relative to the dish you bring. We'll address those details and others when I chat with Nadia Teneri later in the show. That's coming up momentarily. I want to first give you an important message to uh, make you aware of.
2: Support for WMNF comes from listeners like you and Florida State University. The purchase of Florida State University specialty license plates helps support scholarships for deserving students at FSU. More information on FSU specialty plates can be found online at fsu.edu
1: mytag. All right, right now, though, let's talk turtles with Dr. Peral. With a reminder that I invited, join the conversation by calling 813 239 9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org, or texting 813 433 0885. Let's talk again with Dr. Justin Peral on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Peral. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us on, again on Talking Animals. I appreciate it. Yeah, no
3: problem. It's always fun.
1: Great. So we'll delve into the record number of uh, nests and your specific role at the center in a moment or two. But first, maybe you could give me an overview of what Loggerhead Marine Center is. I sort of made a you know glib, quick description there in the introduction. But what 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 is Loggerhead Marine Life Center? What what does it do, and maybe a bit of its mission?
3: Yeah. So we're a, a nonprofit uh, sea turtle research, rehabilitation, conservation, and education facility. Like you said, located in. Uh, Northern Palm Beach County on the Atlantic coast of Florida. So each one of those departments is very busy year to year. So obviously the rehabilitation program, we uh, take in well over 100 uh, juvenile to adult sea turtle patients and rehabilitate those every year. You know, we're a a rescue to release facility. So really typically nobody here is, you know, the captive turtle. The goal is to always release those animals. Um, the research program that I run is, um, like you said, we monitor about a, a nine-and-a-half-mile stretch of beach and in that area adjacent to the center and count every sea turtle nest. And we're also out there tagging the turtles and doing satellite tracking of those turtles, taking blood samples, doing a lot of things um, to learn more about those animals and how humans impact them. Um, our conservation team is out there cleaning the beaches. We have a responsible peer initiative where we... To teach anglers what to do if they accidentally hook a sea turtle, and then we have a, a sea turtle protection zone there where we encourage boaters to go slow in the area, especially during nesting season, and then our, you know, our education program is, is reaching you know, 60 to 75,000 uh, students of all ages every year, um, and, you know, our facility is donation-based. Uh, we don't believe that, you know, there should be any financial barriers to Learning about the marine environment and conservation, so
1: that's kind of that's kind of us in a nutshell. Wow, that's a lot of a lot of dimensions, a lot of elements. And uh, LMC opened in 1983. That was obviously about 40 years ago. So I'm going to guess you weren't there then. But from what you've heard and just any institutional knowledge you have, what was the place like by contrast to what you just described in those very initial years?
3: I actually do have a picture of me um, here when I was five years old. And we started uh, Eleanor Fletcher as our founding um, individual, and she kind of was one of the first individuals in the state of Florida that had a marine turtle permit to work with sea turtles in the local area. And she pioneered a lot of the work um, in the state of Florida to be able to do what we do now, and we've obviously grown exponentially. But back when we started, uh, we were just a tiny little trailer, that had turtles in pools. Um, and we have since, you know, well uh, doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you know, even more than that our size. And we're now able to, you know, ha- house um, 20 to 30 turtles at a time that wow. we can rehabilitate. Uh, so it's, you know, we've, we've well over doubled our, our expansion um, over the last 10 or 15 years and yeah, allowing more students to come and learn and more guests to come. We've, added some fish tanks that teach people about the local environment here and the local species that we have. So, yeah, we're uh, a lot bigger and a lot more diverse than our than our humble beginnings. But yeah. It's all good.
1: But it sounds like the humble beginnings, much like now, fundamentally it was helping turtles in, that were in trouble in one, one form or another.
3: Correct. I wonder if she was an educator first and foremost, and, you know, she started to realize some of the, but the lighting issues on our local beaches were, were having some problems and causing turtles to disorient in the wrong direction. And that's where she kind of got her inspiration to really start, start what we are now.
1: Wow. And that's uh, also interesting on uh, a side uh, that there's a picture of you at that place at five years old. So I guess you had a fairly precocious interest in turtles uh, you know, from the get go.
3: Yeah, we, we were um, a family that took in every, you know, I grew up in Memphis, so we were it was kind of landlocked for the most part, unless you count the Mississippi River. But, um, you know, we uh, had every stray animal that came into the house and in, into the yard was pretty much adopted by our family. So early on, I had kind of that love of animals and the marine science thing just kind of I fell into
0: it.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, now that you say that, I, I do remember that when, when we spoke before, we did talk briefly about being sort of landlocked in, in Memphis. Um, so it's it's you know maybe all the more interesting that now you've kind of forged a career that's you know constantly in and around the ocean. Um, can you kind of just retrace that path a little bit for me from how you got from Memphis, even though it sounds like it was always about helping animals no matter where you were and no matter what the family was doing, but how you kind of went from there to, um, your educational training and then becoming a VP of uh, research at loggerhead.
3: Sure. Um, it, uh, sea turtles kind of just fell into my lap. So I'll, you know, like I said, I, I grew up in a small town in Memphis called Cordova, um, Tennessee and went to a small high school there and, um, just, Really, always had an interest in in biology and in the natural world and how things worked. And I was always playing in the creeks and things and catching tadpoles near a house. Um, and. Um, I did have roots in Florida. A lot of my family, um, my extended family, lived in Florida, so we would come and visit every so often. And my uh, my first experience with a sea turtle, I think, was in like Mexico. A little a green turtle came up on the beach, and I got to, I remember seeing that. And unfortunately, the turtle did not weigh any eggs because she got scared by the crowd of people. But um, so I knew I kind of wanted to do marine biology um, my whole life. Like, yeah. But yeah, at least animal work. And then I did my undergraduate degree, I went to the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, and did a marine biology undergraduate there, and um, procrastinated quite a bit when I was ready to apply for graduate school, and I only applied to three and got into one. And the one that I got into just happened to be with sea turtles. You know, my, my goal was not always to work with sea turtles, but it's kind of what fell into my lap, like i said, and... Um, So then I did my uh, Ph.D. at Florida Atlantic University down in Boca Raton on the Atlantic coast of Florida. Um, And then after that, I moved over to Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida, on the West Coast, over by you guys. Yeah. Did a postdoctoral research fellowship there, working with uh, Sea Turtle Immunology Lab for a little bit, looking more at turtle health and their immune function in relation to... A red Tides, that you guys, again, are all familiar over there with the harmful algae. Yeah. And um, then I got a call from the veterinarian over at Loggerhead. Um, I talked a little bit at USF and St. Pete, and then I uh, got a call from the vet here, and I haven't looked back, and I've been here for seven years, and that was kind of my... Somewhat linear journey, and you know, a lot of people have a lot of people that work here have uh, some more interesting stories. some of them are sorted out as chefs and now they're kind of in the education department and things like that. but yeah, mine was always kind of the academic or scientific route.
1: For sure. and uh, so with that in mind, describe I mean, you've obviously kind of touched on it at least incidentally uh, already, but describe what VP of research at Loggerhead Marine Center uh, entails exactly. What are your chief areas of responsibility?
3: Yeah, so um, I do run the research department, and I also oversee our conservation department as well. So VP of Research kind of covers um, two of our four departments. Um, so a lot of management, people management, is a large part of my job, and um, primarily keeping the team that works with me happy because they're all incredible, incredibly hard workers. Um, but aside from that aspect, uh, we're... For about eight months of the year, you know, sea turtle season on the west coast, on the east coast of Florida ranges from March through October, and we have a morning monitoring program where we're out there counting every every crawl that a sea turtle makes on the beach during nesting season, and then we also have a night monitoring program, and that's kind of the, my primary focus during nesting season is being out there. Uh, placing tags on the turtles, identifying the turtles, uh, measuring them, weighing them sometimes, uh, placing satellite tags, taking blood or genetic samples for colleagues. Um, I also mentor a lot of undergraduate um, master's and Ph.D. students as part of their uh, committees to graduate with their advanced degrees. A lot of meetings, um, yeah. You know, VP, which is fine. We've got a we've got a really wonderful team that we work with here. But and then a lot of outreach. You know, um, obviously we're nonprofit. Like I said, our our admission is primarily donation based. So a lot of what we do is trying to find funding for all aspects of of our. Our facility and um, that 's that's another major part of, of my job is kind of outreach and speaking to
1: donors and uh, things like that Wow, well, it sounds uh, just just like the center itself. It sounds like your your job is multifaceted and then some so
3: um, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, we 're uh, catching up on sleep this time of year because you know for like six eight months we don 't get any
1: so <laughs> yeah, so let me ask you a little bit more about that so when you're, when there 's the morning monitoring. Like, how many people would that normally involve? And 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 do you, do you go by like a different patch of beach each day, or how do you how do you figure out like where you kind of left off? In other words, from monitoring the last part of the uh, the nest and the turtles. Yeah.
3: so we have two full time employees that that run the morning monitoring program, and then each year we take um, seven or eight seasonal employees and then additionally three interns and that makes up our morning monitoring program and it ramps up very slowly you know nesting in february and march we only get you that's when the leatherbacks start and we are only getting maybe one to two or three maybe five nests a day during that time depending on you know what the turtles want to do and then we start bringing on each one of those technicians kind of staggered and as nesting ramps up and you know there are certain days where we get over a thousand sea turtle activities on our on our 10 miles our nine or nine and a half mile stretch of beach every day um so then what we do is we'll send out a team of you know we're limited by how many ATVs or all-terrain vehicles we have that can go on the beach but so then we'll split the beach into sections so you know Juno, we'll have somebody go south Juno and north Juno. we'll have somebody go to our uh, other beach in jupiter and split that beach and then we have somebody at our northernmost beach, which is Tequesta, and then we may have a floater that goes and digs the nests or checks the nests that are already marked from the previous day, and in an effort to keep track of what we've already marked, what we do is we actually drive over each crawl, each new crawl that we see with the ATV, and that way um, the next day we don't get confused, even though it is pretty easy to tell if a crawl's been there for a little bit longer due to the wind and stuff like that, but
1: so, so that's how you indicate where you left off on, on yesterday's efforts. Correct. And where Correct. you pick it up. Uh, yep. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and is, the, uh, is that nine-and-a-half-mile stretch, is that proscribed by resources, um, man and woman power, other factors, or is there a sp- specific area that you're, you know, in a sense kind of licensed or authorized to conduct this research?
3: Yeah, so everything in the state of Florida is permitted by Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. So our stretch of beach is that nine and a half mile stretch of beach. Yeah. On the southern end is a state park. So we're really not supposed to be going in the state park because it's you know, it's a it's a protected area. And then our northern end is is a is a count, is the county line. So the Palm Beach County line ends where our survey um our survey ends in the northern stretch of that area and then but you know, each mile of beach in the state of Florida, aside from some of the portions in the Big Bend or kind of Florida's armpit where it curves around, you know,
0: yeah. are
3: monitored by some type of volunteer group or nonprofit or for-profit company. So nearly every foot of beach is counted for seashore activities every year.
1: Wow, well, it sounds like it probably would vary quite a bit in terms of um, the the the. Kind of level of research or, or uh, counting or tallying, just because it sounds like some of it, if it's all volunteer as opposed to the kind of supervision that you provide and the full time employees that do some of the work that you just mentioned, seems like that would Correct. just be a, a sort of a different set of results necessarily. Um, yeah. But yeah,
3: uh, it, depends on, it depends on the beach. You know, certain beaches, uh, the state asks for more data than others. So a beach that's maybe just volunteer run. They may strictly just be counting how many nests they got. They may not be marking and looking for that reproductive success like we do. Yeah. Um, And there's other areas that, you know, we, we, every single track that is is on our beach gets documented with a GPS coordinate. So we have maps of, you know, we know where every single thing is every single year. So that's, we're the, not the overachievers because a lot of people do exactly
1: what we do in the state of Florida, but that's kind of the maximum effort. That yeah, that's the top end kind of, of, of monitoring yeah. all this, yeah. yeah. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Justin Peralt, Vice President of Research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, a uh, nonprofit sea turtle research, rehabilitation, education, and conservation operation in Juneau, Florida. Peralt and his team, plus other experts elsewhere in Florida, rep- have reported a record number of sea turtle nests were laid this season, so I'm about to try to explore that with Dr. Peral, basically the reasons behind uh, the record-setting nests. If you have a question for Dr. Peral about sea turtles or about the nesting or anything else that sort of pertains to our conversation today or just would like to offer a comment on that, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at org or text 813-433-0885. So... Dr. Brown, I hope this won't involve a detour into your giving me a talk about the birds and the bees, but tell me on the most fundamental level how sea turtle nesting actually works. When do they typically nest and and, and where and why?
3: So sea turtles have a a really remarkable life history. So they breathe um, in different areas typically than where they feed. So, for instance, our leatherback turtles that nest in the state of Florida, they actually forage or eat in the northwest in the northern Atlantic. So we have turtles now that we're tracking that are, um, you know, off of Canada, just south of Quebec, near Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland and things like that. So, and the loggerheads don't go quite that far, and most of the greens kind of feed down in the Florida Keys. Um, so then they make their migrations, um, you know, annually. Certain uh, species will make their migrations down to Florida where they uh, mate, Uh, which is a very interesting process. And um, once the eggs are fertilized and um, are ready to be laid, um, the female turtle will crawl up on the beach, uh, dig an egg chamber, um, and typically at night, and lay her eggs, disguise the nest, and return to the ocean. And she'll do that anywhere from four to eight or ten times in a single season every eight, Days to fourteen days or so, give or take, depending on the animal.
1: Um, so that's kind of the gist of, of sea turtle nesting and, and, and nesting and breeding biology. Yeah. Option. So does that mean, Dr. Perot, that, that 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 female has has um, un, has been breeding that many times? If, if if there's forty-eight times over the course of the season that they will lay their eggs, does that necessarily, I guess, reflect that they've there's been breeding that many times as well?
3: Uh, Not necessarily, and that's kind of one of the unknowns in sea turtles is um, what they, we do know that they store sperm, so across the nesting season, so, and they actually mate with several different fathers um, within a single nest, so there's some loggerhead turtles that have been shown to have up to eight fathers in a single single nest of eggs, so what we believe happens is there's probably mating across the season, yes, but that animal likely breeds at the beginning of the season with one or multiple males and then uses that um, as she ovulates her next clutch of eggs, as we call it. Um, and then the sperm will fertilize those eggs and then she'll lay down the egg white or the albumin and then the shell. And then uh, that process again, like I said, it takes about two weeks, give or take, and then she'll come back and do it again. But she doesn't necessarily breed Again, each time that she lays a new,
1: I see, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, when she comes back each time during that season, does she come back to the identical location?
3: That is a bit of a misnomer, so it's somewhat true. Um, so, what, you know, a lot of people say they come back to the same beach that they were born, and it's more likely the same region. So, a sea turtle that is that is, hatches in southern Florida will likely return to south florida when she's ready to lay her eggs okay um however there are some turtles that we know you know we have the same you know we've tagged them so we know their identity and we'll have like a green turtle that will come back two years later on the same date in the same zone of beach uh, year after year so you know there are some that are quite um uh, have a quite a high fidelity, we call it, or loyalty to a certain nesting area, whereas others kind of travel quite a bit more in between their nests.
1: So that sounds like that's just like maybe the the habit or the inclination of that particular turtle.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a yeah, we, we do know that. So based on um, some genetics work that's been done in sea turtle nests, yeah. Um, they've shown that some turtles are, like I said, like, very loyal to certain nesting beaches, and then others can travel hundreds of miles in between each nest. Um, yeah. Why they do that is, is unknown. It's kind of, we think it's kind of a bet hedging scenario. You know, maybe if I lay a nest here and the nest over here, one will one will hatch or won't get predated. Oh,
1: I see. Playing playing the odds in a sense.
3: Yep. Yeah,
1: I got Absolutely. you. All right, I have some follow-up questions, but I think we have a call over the question as well. Mm-hmm. So, hi, you're on Talking Animals, Dr. Justin Perot. Yeah, hey, guys, thanks for taking the
2: call. I just wanted to share an awesome story with you uh, relative to the conversation. Uh, my wife and I had started going to Fort Lauderdale, North Fort Lauderdale, uh, for our first honeymoon as our children, we started having children. We took them one year, uh, their first time down there, uh, and we go to the beach, and it's all marked off with these yellow you know, markers, and there's numbers and stuff on the markers, and Um, We became educated that these were sea turtle nests, and had no idea. We'd never seen them before, and the numbers indicated how many eggs were in there. Uh, So I think when they were laid, maybe, and when they were gonna possibly hatch. Uh, You know, some coordination of numbers like that. And I think the University of Florida, or uh, uh, anyway, some some university was helping manage that. So we we go to dinner one night, and we come back and my daughter wanted to go to the beach. So it was late, but we're like, okay, let's walk down to the beach. And uh, so we see some people with some flashlights or something, and one, you know, people walk up to us and say, hey, there's a, there's a turtle here laying eggs. you know, like, what? So we got to witness that. We thought that was just the most amazing thing ever. They allowed us to walk up slowly, quietly, no lights on, very quietly and respectfully and watch this. This amazing process, this amazing creature uh, lay these eggs, and, and my kids were just ecstatic. So that was enough energy right there. And we're walking up the beach, you know, and after that, and then my daughter starts screaming. It was up ahead, and one of the nests that we had seen the day before was hatching baby sea turtles. Mm. And they were walking towards the sea. So we were able to witness two amazing things wow. at once. Guys, if you, if you know, it, it, it's just amazing. Uh, and the, the community and culture around that and the knowledge. Thanks for coming on and sharing that because it is amazing. And we do need to preserve that. And uh, my children to this day uh, talk about that. And we'll never you know forget about that with their children. We got some pictures, but thank you for your show.
1: Okay, well, thanks for sharing that uh, that memory, and uh, maybe one or more of your children will become people that help track turtles and nests and stuff uh, at some point. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So, Dr. Peral, um so back to the turtles that kind of come back to approximately where they were and others that come back more directly, um, is that involve some kind of, like, internal, uh, like, honing device, as far as people know, or, I mean, how is it? Because it sounds like some were coming back pretty much, almost precisely to where they laid nests last season, and some are not. But but it sounds like part of the hunch of that is that some are by design not going exactly the same place just because they think that's that's going to enhance the prospects of more uh, more successful hatchings. Yep, it's
3: another one of the big mysteries of sea turtles that we we understand. Quite a bit about, but not everything. Um, so sea turtles do have mag- magnetic orientation. Um, so you know we believe that there's probably some kind of imprinting on the magnetic field of where the hatchlings are. You know where they've hatched from their local beaches, and then there's likely um, you know the, the the migratory cycle of a, of a small sea turtle is, is quite incredible because they're you know, at least here off of Florida. They're Hitting the Gulf Stream, they're swimming out to the Gulf Stream and then making this real huge loop in the North Atlantic Ocean and swimming up, you know, by the Azores and things like that. And several years later, they will return to um, either their foraging grounds or you know where kind of in areas where they were born. Um, and they they use the Earth's magnetic field to guide them back to those beaches or those regions back to where they they hatched. And um, so it's. And you can expose sea turtles as hatchlings to different magnetic fields, and they will swim in the, the proper direction, regardless of the field. You know, depending on the field that they're they're um, as subjected to, they'll actually change the angle or the direction of where they swim based on the magnetic field that they're they're subjected to, so that they know that they're going to try to reach the Gulf Stream. Like, and this is in laboratory experiment. so it is ingrained.
0: Wow.
3: Um, to be able to find where, where they came from. And, you know, it, in tools that we rehabilitate here that we satellite track, it's interesting because we'll release them, and usually it takes them a couple weeks and they kind of wander. And then after about, you know, one or two weeks, they beeline it to exactly where, you know, their foraging grounds are. And part of that could be in their genetics, um, and that's something that's being explored at the moment as well.
1: Wow, well this is super fascinating not that we got a got some more callers that want to get involved but I just want to quickly add now and we'll come back to this at least one more time uh, that if you want to find out more about Loggerhead Marine Life Center and, and perhaps you know support their efforts of Dr. Perrault and all the different elements of the, uh, the center the website is actually marinelife.org, marinelife.org so let's take at least one or more of our callers here and get some other people involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animal with Dr. Justin Perrault Go ahead, it's you
3: Hello. Hi. I have a question about uh, temperature and nesting. Mm-hmm. I yeah. um, I read that um, that's affecting the turtle nest, of course, of the uh, sex of those turtles. And we had such a hot
4: summer, and I'm wondering if anybody's doing any type of experimenting with maybe putting. Um, like the
3: you see these people on the beach with beach covers, like put a
0: mm-hmm.
3: beach cover over a nest just to see if, if that affects the temperature. I know turtles don't like to see structures, you know, when they're trying to come up and lay, but I thought maybe, you know, if you somebody just put like one of those near mm-hmm. um, you know, over a nest near another nest and maybe compared yeah. the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so you are correct. Uh, Temperature impacts developing sea turtles in a number of different ways. One is through feminization, so the the sex of the sea turtle is determined by the temperature at which it incubates. So here in Florida, we actually have a lot of females produced because warmer temperatures lead to females. Um, Warmer temperatures also lead to smaller hatchlings and then oftentimes hatchlings of suboptimal quality. Um, in addition to just being legally high. You know, at a certain temperature, the the animals can no longer survive. So what you're suggesting has actually occurs in a number of beaches around the world where they have hatcheries and they'll relocate the eggs to shaded areas or the areas where there's um, less likelihood of poaching. So on smaller density beaches where you only get a handful of nests, Things like that are much more easy to do. But, you know, here in Juneau Beach, we have a nest every two to three feet. And so when you've got 25,000, it becomes a little bit more, a little trickier to decide what to do. Some people have suggested watering enough to cool them down. So there's quite a bit of research being conducted on that now to really mitigate the effects of climate change. Because, you know, we're, we're seeing feminization of some populations,
4: especially in, those in Australia, um, due to these, these these climatic extremes. Okay, great. Thanks so much right. for your work.
1: Thank you for your okay, question okay. and your call. Appreciate okay. it. So we do have some other callers holding, and I will get to them as soon as I can, but I just want to make sure that we get to what essentially was the core reason for uh, inviting Dr. Peralta on the show today. So what are the prevailing theories about the increase um, in nests in your area that I mean again it's nearly a ten mile stretch, um, but it, it sounds like it really reflected a substantial increase nearly forty percent more nests I guess this year than last
3: correct um, yes, yeah, so there's a number of different reasons that uh, we are attributing this this record nesting you know all it wasn't just us it was along the state of Florida you know Florida in general uh, this year had two hundred and just over two hundred and twelve thousand sea turtle nests in total across all three species so. A really incredible record year all around. Um, And a lot of these recent increases that we're seeing are due to, one, the Endangered Species Act that was put in place in 1973 that afforded protections to a number of different threatened and endangered species all across the United States. Um, Another major factor was there were changes in fisheries regulations in the 80s and 90s, uh, particularly with shrimp trawling, which is very detrimental to the environment and to sea turtle populations in general, but they required a change in U.S. fisheries with the shrimp trawls that allowed sea turtles to escape the nests and not drown. And so that is another source that we directly attribute to a lot of these these um, recent increases. Um, obviously, standardized nest protections are another reason. You yeah, know, we've got pretty much every stretch of beach in the state of florida and all along the coast of the united states where sea turtles nest are are monitored and protected by different different groups and so those are the reasons that we attribute these increases there's also natural variation in sea turtle populations so you know the fact that we had 40 percent more nests this year than last year that's um typical variation sea turtles don't nest every single year they take Two to three or four or more years off every time they left because it is very energetically demanding. So sometimes those numbers of those, you know, the, the two years and the three year remigrants or those that come back after that amount of time may line up perfectly. And then you kind of get this perfect storm of all the turtles in a single year. And um, there's a lot of factors that go into it. So yeah. kind of a a lower year, we don't get really nervous. It's when you start to have low year after low year after low year after low year that, that we start to pay a little bit more attention about what's going on. But right now, we're cautiously optimistic that a lot of these animals are recovering.
1: So I would guess, Dr. Peralta, that, um, that natural variation that you mentioned, because well, it does seem like this uh, that increase in turtle nests does seem pretty much across the board in Florida, I think I did see a read... Um, that there was a decline reported in some areas, like in Pinellas County over on this side, for example. Um, so is that just again a variation within the overall year's um, activity?
3: It could be. Um, it, it's, it's hard to gauge in some of these individual beaches because, like we said, you know, a sea turtle may go outside of that nesting area and nest a little bit further south or north. So it could just be some of that natural variation. Um, perhaps there, you know, there were a lot of changes to the beaches over there with, um, Hurricane Dorian. Yeah. So a lot of the beaches were really decimated, particularly in Sanibel and Captiva areas. I know that. So, you know, there also has to be uh, suitable habitat for them to nest. So that's something else that, that needs to be considered. Yeah. In terms of the habitat still of the same quality as it was before um or is it just natural variation or is there something going on in the population there's a lot of things
0: uh,
1: that yeah. you have
3: to put together with this
1: puzzle Right sounds like several variables even from from a beach to the next beach you, uh, you even yeah. even amidst a year that sounds like record setting but again there there's going to be some exceptions given some of those variables i guess Yeah absolutely. okay let's let's take another caller Okay oh i think we lost him sorry <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, they did have to wait a bit longer than they probably were hoping to. But um, one thing that we touched on with the uh, previous caller um, that I wanted to just clarify with you is, I mean, most people, I think, that have any experience with sea turtles' nests know this. But can you talk a little bit about lighting and why lighting, or more to the point in some ways, the lack thereof is so significant for nesting sea turtles?
3: Yeah, so sea turtles, um, so a lot of people say, you know, sea turtles crawl towards the moon, and that's that's also kind of a misconception. So sea turtles crawl away from large, dark silhouettes like the dune structure, and they crawl towards the brightest horizon, which should be the ocean with the uh, glow of the, the reflection of the moon and the stars on the water. So those sea turtles use those visual cues to after they hatch to find their way to the ocean or after they're nesting to find their way back the ocean so a lot of times um landward you have a lot of sky glow so it's very bright over um not the horizon but but the landward side and or you might have an artificial source of white or yellow uh, light that is also landward but the seats that may confuse the sea turtle and cause it to crawl in the wrong direction so sea turtles we know see um very poorly in the red amber spectrum they do see those colors but at very reduced acuities and so when we're working on the beach at night or if you do have to illuminate your home for protection or whatever it is there are sea turtle friendly lighting uh, sources that are available so that white lights don't have to be used so at night we we only use red headlamps we rarely Use white light unless it is, you know, for the the safety of the researcher and the animal together. Um, and we encourage people to use no light at all if they can. But that's that's kind of why lighting is is so important to sea turtles. And um, you know, Juno Beach is also very dark, which one be, may be one reason why we have you know such a high number. Yeah. In, in these areas.
1: And and in the data that you collected in this this kind of record setting season. Um, does some of that get uh, calculated in such a way that they're, even with the variability from, from year to year and turtle to turtle that we've already kind of touched on, um, mm-hmm. would that help predict an, an increase or a decrease in the number of necks, either the next season or within X amount of years of seasons? So would the
3: previous year predict the next year? Is that yeah, the
1: with the fine, like, well, this year, since it's yeah. record setting, mm-hmm. does that, in, in, in calculating those numbers and putting all that data, does that give you sort of at least a hint of what was likely to be the, the case the following season?
3: Um, Sort of. So we, it is unlikely next year that we will set the same record. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the people, you know, oftentimes with the media, they'll want to say, oh, sea turtles declined. And it's like, yeah, they did decline from the previous year, but it, we do not expect record setting every single year. And um, what was interesting in the state of Florida is the green turtle was actually we were really able to predict high and low years up until about three or four years ago, um, where they in the even years for whatever reason they were low in, laying. You know, we'll say we had 900 green turtle nests on our beach. And the next year we may have had 7,000, so nearly 70 to, you know, 80 to 90% increase. Yeah. And that that high-low variability was pretty common for about 10 years. And then I think it was 2020, 2020 is when the green turtle decided, oh, we're going to have a mid-year. And then we were like, oh, no, we don't know what that means. And the next year was another mid-year, and then the next year was another mid-year, and then they broke the record. The green turtles broke the record. This year, so we did have that ability to, pre- to predict at least with one species yeah. recently, and then nature
1: threw us the curveball as, as always. And speaking of, this is a slightly off topic, uh, Doctor Pearl, but I mean, when you were talking about this, it made me think about. Um, there's a beach in Poipu on the island of Kauai in the Hawaiian Islands that very recently, I understand, has uh, experienced this thing where I think it's green turtles. Um, mm-hmm. Come in in gigantic numbers at the end of each day, which they had up until this, whatever, this might be a year or two into this now, maybe longer now, but, but it's fairly recent phenomenon. That had never really happened. And now, um, I mean, like dozens of turtles come in at the end of the day and just kind of snooze there and hang out there. Mm-hmm. And um, yep. so it's, it's raised questions, obviously, about how to protect them. And, you know, tourists and other people are, you know, getting too close, all the inevitable things. Yeah, But I just thought that that seems like sort of a fascinating, like outlier, weird sort of behavior that I don't know if that's just because the population has grown so large or there's something else that's um, dictating that they would do that. But anyway, I just I just thought that was interesting. And I thought as a turtle yeah. turtle guy, you might, uh, you know, think so, too. It is, they are the green turtles that do that. You are
3: correct. And um, green turtles only that only occurs in three parts of the world where sea turtles actually come up on the beach and start there's bas- a basking behavior so yeah
1: that's exactly that's, right you know, yeah. they're,
3: they're trying to, to warm their body um so it does occur in the hawaiian islands it occurs in the galapagos and it i um i believe it occurs in australia and portions of australia are the other portion of, i don't know if i want to be quoted on that because i may be misremembering but yeah there's only Three spots in the world where the animals exhibit that behavior, and it is to, is to just
1: simply get warm and probably you know take a little rest. Yeah, yeah, it just it seems so remarkable because I guess it's when you, you see, I've seen some pictures now of it, and it's like like I say, it's dozens of uh-huh. you know. And otherwise, this is a sort of heavily populated beach with tourists and visitors and other people having picnics and all kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden, there's all these turtles just like plopping down on the beach and, and, and just hanging there, resting, napping. So anyway, yep. interesting.
3: Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Um, and you know, I think people, you know, the, for the first caller, people have this fascination with turtle or sea turtles because, you know, they live in the ocean, but then they come on land sometimes and it's just this kind of unique behavior of a lot of, a lot of animals that people love but people often forget that they are wild animals. You know, yes, they're slow and they can be very cute, um, but they do have a fear response just like any other wild animal would. And so, you know, when you see any wild animal, it's important to just keep your keep your distance and, and have some respect for, for that uh, individual.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to say we're kind of nearing the end of our time, Dr. Uh, Peralt. but, I mean, yeah. you seem every bit as passionate and excited about turtles as you probably did you know, as that five year old and certainly as you were studying them and getting your degrees and stuff. So, um is there something that about the work that you do that's like the most the most exciting? That like this this is the part that I really relish about this is a bunch of stuff I do and uh, you outlined uh-huh. a number of duties. But is there something that where you yeah. just think, well that this is why ultimately why I love to do this every day?
3: Yeah, I my favorite part about this, you know, there's, again, I, like you said, I, the passion is there and I could go on for hours. But the my favorite part about sea turtles is their resiliency. So we can see a turtle that's been struck by a boat or just loaded with the tumors that they get, um, this, this tumor cancerous disease and they're still able to you know those animals are still able to survive and nest and
2: reproduce
3: and just that resiliency is is so respectable that you know that their their odds aren't great of survival and um however they're they're beating a lot of the odds you know thanks in part to a lot of these conservation efforts that have been that have happened over the last several years but you know, it's, they're they're a great ambassador for the ocean and a great sentinel species that teaches us a lot about the health of the oceans. And you know, there's a the tipping point that that will occur eventually. You know, in the, in the environment. So yes, they are resilient, and yes, that makes them so wonderful. Um, but you know, they they can serve as a reminder that they're not immune immune to everything. And I think that. The sea turtle, for whatever reason, people connect with and serve as a great reminder of
1: that. Yeah. So respect, respect sea turtles like you respect other animals and respect the environment. And that's, those are good, Absolutely. good, good words to live by. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Justin Perrault, again, Vice President of Research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, the website to find out more about their work or support them and um, just see some of the things we didn't even have a chance to talk about that they do, as well as marinelife.org. Dr. Perrault, thank you so much for joining us again today on Talking. It was a fascinating conversation. Of course,
3: anytime, It's always fun. Thank you. Thanks.
1: In a moment, I'll talk with Nadia Teneri about Thanks Vegan, Tampa's all-vegan potluck alternative to a traditional Thanksgiving feast. If you are still sorting out your plans for Thanksgiving. That's a week from tomorrow, by the way, November 23rd. You may like the sounds of Thanks Vegan. By all accounts, a sprawling, fabulous spread of delicious food. We'll discuss the specifics of Thanks Vegan when we speak with Nadia in just a moment here on Talking Animals. A more imminent event is an adoption opportunity offered by Merciful Projects this Saturday, November 18th, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., at their uh, headquarters, 901 North, uh, sorry, can't read my own writing now, North Fremont Avenue on Tampa, three three six zero six. Find out more at mercifulprojects.org. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner playing some sea turtle-oriented stand-up by Drew Lynch delivering a piece called Touching Turtles in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF.
4: Um... Took a trip up, uh, uh, pretty recently. I was in, I was in Hawaii, uh, as, you, as you can see from my mom's shirt. And I <laughs> right when my plane l- landed in Hawaii, one of the flight attendants was like, hey, just so you know, you cannot touch the, the sea turtles here or they will fine you up to $10,000. And I was like, I don't appreciate you assuming. <laughs> I have a, a history of touching and turtles. <laughs> I don't like that I was the o- only person she told either. I say, you think I, you think I'm the guy? I give a strong n- uh, n- turtle touch and vibe for you. Know your market. Why don't you you tell me what what part of a turtle l- looks fun to touch at all? You think I was like, oh, I, I, I can't wait to rub its its, its bald head run my hands over over, over that dirty igloo it's carrying. I never wanted to touch a turtle until she told me I couldn't. Now I'm curious. I'm like, why? Why? Will will it cure me? Why? $10,000, man, for for, for touching a turtle. Immediately, I was like, what's uh, what's the fine for spanking them, do you think? Is it... Is is it the same? How hard is, is a touch until it's it's, it's in spanking territory? I mean, spanking underwater, That's that's got to feel like a touch, wouldn't you say?
1: That was Drew Lynch in today's Comedy Corner of the piece called Touching Turtles taken from an appearance at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. Now it's time to speak with Nadia Tenere about Thanks Vegan. The all-vegan powerhouse potluck happening here in Tampa on Thanksgiving Day. Let's get the lowdown. I welcome Nadia Teneri to Talking Animals. on dub Inter. Good morning, Nadia.
5: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So um, this is, if I'm not mistaken, is the 14th annual Thanks Vegan. Can you talk a little bit about the history, like what prompted the first Thanks Vegan, at least here in Tampa?
5: Yeah. So one of our founding member members, I think it was 2000 and that they did the first thanks vegan potluck you know at that time there was not uh, a huge vegan community like there is today not as many restaurants or vegan options at the store Um, and it was a way for the community to get together and share during a holiday that is particularly not vegan for a lot of people um so you know it was a nice way for for everybody to kind of bond over a shared philosophy and a shared lifestyle and um it's been one of my highlights of every year since I started going in 2007 and, you know, before I helped become an organizer. Um, but, yeah, even still today, even with all the other options, it's just a way for everyone to come together, share tons of lovely homemade vegan food. That's and um, Yeah, just have a great time.
1: No, that's great, and I know there was, of course, as it was for most everything, a little bit of an interruption during the pandemic, but it's now back in full swing, so for people still kind of pondering their Thanksgiving plans, maybe you could outline the key details of Thanksgiving. I guess we know the date, because it's Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd. Uh, the location, you might want to outline yeah, so that.
5: It is on Thanksgiving Day yeah. at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Tampa on Morris Bridge Road, so it's right off. 75 and off the Fowler exit, um, very close to there. Uh, you can find all the details on thanksvegan.com, but the social hour starts at one thirty p.m. The potluck eating starts at 2. We have a raffle going on at 3.30 with tons of really cool prizes from a lot of places with vegan options and you know things to do around Tampa. Um, then the food table closes at 4, and the event ends entirely at 5.30
1: so let's get into, because it's, it's a little bit complicated, and something, I think some deadlines for certain parts of this might, maybe is are, have already passed. But basically, again, it's a potluck. So how does it work? Like if I were attending, what would I need to bring and do and pay to enjoy? Thanks, thanks Vegan over there.
5: So it is a potluck, yes. Yeah. So everybody has to bring a dish. We have a prepayment option up until the 20th and that is a discounted uh, entry because we have to pay to rent the venue out and everything like that, so it helps offset that cost. Um, so, yeah, there's a prepaid price up till the 20th, and then if you come at the door, you do still have to bring a dish, but it is higher.
1: Okay, so um, can you give us some of the details about, like, what kind of dish people need to bring and how that works? Just Just trying to give people some details so if they're interested, they can kind of get a yeah. sense of what's expected of them.
5: Of course, yeah. So you need to bring a vegan dish, so, you know, obviously no animal products at all. Um, that feeds at least eight people, and if it's a couple's dish, and you have to feed at least 16 people um, and bring a serving utensil and an ingredient list.
1: And so if you do that, uh, you still, as I understand it, you still pay a certain amount, but obviously you pay less than if you didn't arrive. I guess you can't really arrive without a dish.
5: Right. It's a potluck. We are not doing any, any you know, admittance without a dish.
1: Right. But some people, I guess, um, bring a dish and still pay something, and um, and then I guess
5: you prepay than if you arrive at the door. But yeah, there we there is um, you know a a fee just because we do have to offset the cost of the event. If anyone does want to volunteer, we do need more volunteers, and volunteers do get a, a even more discounted entry.
1: Yeah, I was going to mention that uh, volunteers are always uh, in need, great always need the there. The
5: day before for setup, um, we, we usually have enough people for that. But the day of, starting in the morning, we could definitely use some help. And that, you know, they can get an even cheaper admittance for that.
1: And Nadie, where can people uh, sign up if they want to volunteer or, or go online just to get more details about Thanks Vegan? Yeah, so they
5: can go to ThanksVegan.com and that has all of the information there on the event itself different campaigns, you know, VegFest, everything like that. Um, and there's also contact information there if they want to volunteer. Um, they can also reach out to me and I can give you my contact information or if I'm allowed to say it on the air here, I can say that.
1: You're, if, you're, if you're comfortable saying it on the air, you're welcome to, of course.
5: Yeah, sure. So they can they can email thanksvegan at gmail.com okay. to, um, you know, ask to volunteer and that routes them directly into us and we'll, we'll find them a slot that works for them.
1: That's great, and I guess they could use that same email if they had a specific question about bringing something or not bringing something, and uh, yeah. to clarify. Yeah. Really,
5: any other questions about raffle prizes, anything like that? Everything can pretty much be routed to that email address.
1: And do you already know what dish you're bringing. Me? Yeah.
5: Ooh, you know what? Still, Still
1: deciding. Sounds classic like
5: classic favorites, but one of my favorites is like a sweet potato, um, an almond crust pie with a uh, eggplant and tomato filling, and pine nuts.
1: Wow, I bet that's a uh, popular item there on the table. Jeez. It is
5: festive but delicious.
1: Nice, great. Well, Nadia, thank you so much. So again, this is Thanks Vegan on Thanksgiving Day, obviously November twenty third. Unitarian Universalist Church of Tampa. You can find out all the information by going to th- thanksvegan.com. dot com. And uh, again, they're looking for help and volunteers as well. That would also make your uh, your the price that you might pay even less, and uh, everybody could use some help. So. Check it all out, and uh, hopefully everybody has a great Thanksgiving slash Thanksgiving. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having
5: me. Thank you.
1: Coming up on WNF, it's Slice of Life. The wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman and others. After that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth... From 1-3, followed by Nancy C., the new, quote-unquote, host of the Wednesday Traffic Jam. I mean, she's new to that time slot, but hardly new to WMF and a great, great program of great music. That's from 3 to 6, at which point, after that, our terrific Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. It's WMNF Tampa. I won't be here next Wednesday. Happy Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving to you. We'll see you in two weeks.